Welcome to another episode of the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. I hope you've enjoyed the last few episodes that we've talked about native peoples. Uh, We have a few more episodes to go on this matter. We could really spend an incredible amount of time going through the mythology, going through the sociology, the geography, going through individual tribes. Um, and we will continue to talk about native people. They're not going to stop. As, you know, we're not going to stop this subject as soon as um, uh, the European uh, Europeans arrive. Uh, they're going to keep being embedded in the story because they are part of the story, and they'll continue to be part of the story. Um, unfortunately, it's mostly a sad story um, after the uh, European incursion into this part of the world. Um, but um, I just wanted to let you know that um, I'm not by just covering them for a few episodes. I'm not overlooking them or trying to avoid um, talking about them further or uh, just moving on to the story of white Europeans. Um, I'm just trying to trace the history um, of our state. And if I spend too much time um, in the prehistory, I think I might lose most of you. So um, we have a few more episodes to do on native peoples, and then we'll uh, start talking about uh, the first Europeans to arrive. Uh, So today we're talking about the people in the Northeast. So let's get started. I'm always amazed by animals in the desert. Camels, for instance. Most of you probably know that camels adapted uh, to an arid desert life by acquiring larger humps. Um, They did this through natural selection. These humps that store fat can be used for food or water if times get tough, if there's uh, not much nutrition or water around. But you may not know that camels also have uh, evolved long eyelashes that function as uh, uh, sand-resistant tools. Um, They also have nostrils that they can open and close to keep sand out. Uh, They have a third eyelid that's kind of like an opaque... A clear shield that they can use to cover their eye to keep sand out. And their feet are almost like snowshoes, so wide that they can walk level-footed across steep uh, sand dunes. And I bring this up to say that life can find ways to live in any environment. Last week, we talked about a tribe that lived in a verdant landscape, brimming with vegetation, many water supplies, and animal life. And this week, we're going to look at two native groups, the Achomawi and the Atsugawi. Uh, they are located in the east, to the east of the Talawa. And again, I apologize if I didn't uh, pronounce those names perfectly. Uh, my goal here is just to do my best and um, apologize ahead of time. So the land in the eastern half of California is, is pretty diverse. Uh, these native groups lived in three primary counties, Shasta, Modoc, and Lassen. This area of land includes semi-arid highlands and valleys. Uh, To the southern edge, there are remains of lava beds. Um, The origin of most of this lava is from Medicine Lake Volcano in Northern California. Uh, But there are also other volcanoes as well. Um, There are many mountains in this area, for example, Mount Shasta. Um, And there are also uh, sparse trees, not quite as dense as the Northwest, um, and that's just due to the climate. Um, but they're there. Uh, rivers still play an important part of these people, just like they did for the Talawa. Uh, but the climate is fairly arid. Uh, unlike the Talawa, there's little rain here. 
Um, and actually, the winters are very cold, much colder than they are in the Northwest. So we get much more of a climate of extremes. Um, and what this means is that the climate uh, causes the flora and fauna to be much more limited uh, than either in the South or the West. Um, Northern California, Oregon, and Washington all share this kind of interesting bifurcated landscape, a wet and green landscape on the western half and a much drier, warmer landscape on the eastern half. And the geography and the climate of this area will dictate many of the physical features and ideas of these cultures. Like last week, we'll start with the diet of these people. The staple of both of these tribes' diet was acorns. More so to the west than the east, as the land grew more arid in the east as you traveled. The natives more in the east needed to trade with groups and the west for the acorns. Now, the acorns were dried and grounded into a meal. Water was then added, and it was then baked into a cake or a patty. In addition to acorns, uh, the tribes also relied on roots, berries, seeds, whatever they could gather. These various vegetables were also ground up or dried into various types of cakes, pancakes, or patties. Now, in terms of meat, large animals like deer were hunted, but they weren't as abundant given the more arid terrain. When deer was hunted, these tribes used various methods, but one of the most common was the use of a disguised pit. This is actually how the Pit River, which runs along this area, got its name. Along the river, they would dig six to ten foot holes, and then they would cover the holes with sticks and dirts. Um, and then they would hide and watch, um, and hunters would very, be very keen with their eyes because if the deer saw them look down at the trap, uh, the deer would see the trap and avoid it. Many other hunting methods were used for, uh, for deer, including nooses, uh, sneak attacks, using hiding places, and then driving the deers into traps. Rabbits, on the other hand, were far more common given the terrain and were killed using more traditional methods like clubs, snares, bows, arrows, and spring traps. When it came to fishing, the Northeast tribes used similar methods to the Talawa tribe like weirs, traps, and harpoons. If you're looking for a more in-depth discussion of fishing methods, uh, return to last week's episode. Now, we will discuss baskets and weaving in further detail in future episodes as they play a central part in tribes, particularly in Central California. Uh, but we'll briefly discuss here the basics. Now, baskets were one of the most important homemade goods um, in the tribe and are common across all native peoples. The main method used by Northeast tribes for weaving baskets was twined weaving. The technique involves taking two strands of twine and wrapping them around in kind of uh, a, a pattern across a larger vertical piece of material. Now, in terms of utensils, we're talking about food now, uh, the primary homemade utensil was a spoon, and it was typically made from a breastbone of a duck. The other interesting thing that was homemade uh, that came from their uh, environment was porcupines. Porcupine tails were actually used as combs. Now, along with the Talawa, in contrast to the Talawa from last week, there was much less of a clear, delineated class structure. There was certainly a chief of some kind that was in a position of a, uh, in a hereditary position. Um, we discussed the role the environment played in creating wealth in the two distinctive classes in Talawa society, 
And so perhaps the reason why there was less clear, uh, less clear class structure was the fact that the environment was much more arid and less verdant, uh, preventing the development of a class uh, that could coast on another class work. Uh, I'm just speculating here. Uh, we don't obviously know, or we can't, we don't have a clear record of uh, the reasons uh, for uh, the emergence of a class structure, but that's just an idea. Now, uh, going back to the chief, the chief's primary duty in these two tribes uh, was basically to lead people into war. Uh, the Achamawi and the Atsugawi uh, were frequently at war with another tribe called the Modoc, uh, which was um, a tribe similar to them, uh, but uh, a tribe in which they conflicted over territory. There are some similarities between the life patterns of the Talawa and these northeast tribes. Um, in particular in terms of life patterns. Uh, during the childbirthing process, there were certain food restrictions that both the mother and the father had to follow. In addition, the parents had to actually live apart. Um, the man would gather wood and the women uh, would wait uh, apart from the man until the child was born. After the child was born, the couple would both bathe as a ceremony of cleansing and return. One interesting fact about babies in this culture was that a, first, a child's first tooth was placed in the child's poop. I don't know why this is, but honestly, I think that this might be a preferable tradition to the tooth fairy. Puberty rituals were particularly fascinating and are worth spending a little time on here. Uh, the boys' and girls' puberty rites were very different. We'll deal with the boys first. It's actually not quite accurate to refer to these as puberty rituals because they typically turned around, occurred around the age of 17. The first thing that was done was, was the boy's ears were pierced with a wooden owl. It's like a, um, a large, uh, thick needle uh, with a wooden handle. After the piercing, the father would drive the boy out of the city, and the boy would, uh, in this ritual, run away to some kind of distant water source. Once there, he would fast and look for a spirit animal or object that would stay with him for the rest of his life. The boy would experience a number of hardships. Uh, he would be forced to drink through reeds. Again, he would be constantly fasting, uh, sleep deprivation, and much more. Now, these rites of passages, rites of passage, excuse me, are common to many cultures, and in our culture, we have a severe lack of them. And so lately, there's been a revival and a renewed interest in these activities, um, particularly as a lot of, um, in particular, young males uh, struggle with the transition into adulthood. The problem is, of course, if we reenacted some of these types of rituals today, uh, child protective services would likely be called. So um, while these are interesting, these are rituals that maybe don't translate directly, but can inspire us to create our own. Now, the girls' puberty rites are similar in some ways with the boys. There was an initial ear-piercing ritual followed by a strange and violent act. Um, usually the girl was hit with an old basket um, by her father or mother. And this perhaps references some kind of uh, passing on of the older generation to the younger. Unlike the boys' ritual of isolation and soul-searching, the girls' ritual included some isolation, but it was mainly focused on dancing. The girl would dance around a fire at night constantly for five nights. 
Like the boy, she needed to abstain from certain foods, even restrained from smelling certain foods. And her ritual would continue after its formal uh, end for two menstrual cycles after the initial five days of the ritual. Marriage followed traditional patterns um, from many other cultures. Uh, the suitor would ask the daughter for the daughter's hand from the parents. The suitor would then make payment. After the payment, the male would collect his wife. Um, occasionally, uh, the man, if he was dissatisfied, particularly if he could not have children, uh, he would return the daughter to the parents. Now, if the man had parents, he would take his wife to live with them. If not, uh, the man would stay and work with the wife's family. Um, so there, was a, uh, there wasn't a new separate home from one's family. It was more... So it was either the male's family that would uh, house the husband and wife or the female's family that would house the husband and the wife. Now, uh, funeral rituals were far less elaborate than the Talawa. Uh, bodies were buried quickly after death. Uh, there wasn't a viewing period. Uh, family and friends would place trinkets with the body after burial. Interestingly, the house of the deceased was often burned, which is very different than what we saw in the Talawa, where the house was kind of a... Uh, it was something that was passed on or something that was seen as extending beyond generations. Perhaps that was the nature of the housing um, and then the nature of the housing in the Talawa was, you know, they were much more uh, elaborate. Now, for some funerals, a dance would be part of the ritual. Like the Talawa, these two tribes also had Hair rituals, uh, if you remember the Talawa widows and widowers singed their hair depending on the size of their loss. So um, a widow without children would have to singe it all the way down to her scalp, whereas um, a widower might just singe the tips. Now, these two tribes instead cut off the hair and wore the hair as a belt um, that they wore after they experienced the loss. Now, there were special rules for widows remarrying. They had to wait until their hair actually grew back to the original place when they cut it. And if they did remarry, the widow was only allowed to marry the deceased husband's brother. Now, it appears that religion in this region was a bit less formalized, uh, both in terms of creation myths and formalized ceremonies. The Talawa appear to have more of a developed religion. And I'd use developed not in a uh, you know, good or bad sense, and I refer to the lack of formalized ceremonies with uh, these two tribes, not in a pejorative way, but just as a descriptive way of talking about uh, how elaborate these myths and ideas were. Regardless, there are distinctives that we should go over, particularly in the role of the shamans. Uh, one of the areas where shamans were important were related to pains. If you remember, in the discussion of the puberty rituals, the boys would attach themselves to a spirit. These spirits required maintenance. Um, they had to sing a song that the spirit sang in the person's dreams, and they also had to follow the spirit's instructions. If they didn't, that person would get ill. The job of the shaman was to identify the source of the pain, and by pain we mean physical source of the illness, and enact a series of rituals to rid the person of the pain. If the shaman was successful, the pains would spread to other people. Or, excuse me, if the shaman was unsuccessful, the pains would spread to other people. The details of these rituals we might view them as kind of exorcisms, are worth reading in further detail, and I recommend you doing that. 
Now, these tribes actually believed in ghosts. They believed that ghosts inhabited people's graves. Uh, shamans were the ones who typically observed the presence of ghosts, but occasionally an average person um, would see them. Like previously discussed pains, an average person would require an illness by seeing them, and the shaman would suck on the face of the person to extract this illness. Now, these aren't to be confused with the pains that we discussed before. These are two separate conditions. Uh, these tribes believed after death, the person's spirit would travel westward and go through the Milky Way to a similar place to what we might think of as heaven, where all things are good. The spirits, though, don't appear to want to stay there all that long. They would regularly come back and visit people in dreams and in, even in their houses. Uh, some of these shamans would actually visit the afterlife and come back to tell the stories of it. Next week, we're going to visit another tribe. Uh, and this time in the Central Valley of California. All right, this has been a fun episode. Uh, stay tuned for our episode next week. Um, we have three more episodes about Native peoples before we talk about the European incursion. Uh, we will spend one week in the Central Valley of California, then we'll talk about some uh, people, desert people of Southern California. And then final, uh, finally, we'll spend a, a, little, a little tiny episode talking about Native peoples on the Channel Islands. Um, they just particularly fascinate me, and so I wanted to spend a little time there before we move on. 